So I read a story once about a famous violinist who was to uh, perform at a world-renowned concert hall. And as he stood before the packed house that night and played his violin, he mesmerized the audience with his skill. And as he lifted his bow off of the string on his final note, the hall erupted with thunderous applause and he was given a standing ovation. And he looked at the crowd for a moment and he walked off the stage and he came back in for an encore performance. And to the amazement of the masses gathered there that night, his encore performance was even more beautiful and even more flawless than the first. And so he looked to the audience and he left the stage for a second time but he was beckoned back by the deafening roar of the multitudes that once again stood to their feet. And so he came out for another encore performance. And the sequence was actually repeated several more times until finally the virtuoso of virtuosos finished his piece. And the violinist looked at the audience, nodded his head, and simply walked off the stage while the cheers still to be heard long after he exited. And so he was in his dressing room gathering up his things to leave and some reporters were, were waiting at the door because they had one big question. Why did you give so many encore performances? I mean, it was great, but you kept coming back out on the stage over and over and over. And the violinist answered the question. The reporter said, you could have stopped after the first and everyone would have been amazed. And the violinist said, for the very first time in my career, my master, the one who taught me to play the violin, was in the audience. And when I finished my performance the first time, everyone stood except for one person. So I played again. And everyone stood except for one person, so I played again. And my very final performance was at the moment that my master stood and applauded. And it was only then I was satisfied that I had done a good job. He looked for only the approval and the applause of his master. And so today we're gonna look at what is it, as believers in Jesus, what is it that Jesus stands up and applauds and approves us for, right? What is the thing that makes our master pleased? What is Jesus looking for from our lives? And he wants us to be like him. And he says that over and over in the scripture. He wants us to be like him. So I want to look in Mark 10 to start this morning to get a glimpse of what Jesus was like. And it's in Mark 10, 42 through 45. And it's pretty straightforward. Jesus is talking. He calls them together and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and gave his life as a ransom for many. Now what we see in this scripture, what we see in many scriptures as we read through the life of Jesus is the kingdom of God has a different set of rules. The greatest among you is the servant, not the person who has all the power, not the person who can manipulate his way to the top, not the person with the biggest bank account, not the person with the greatest influence, but the greatest is the servant. And this passage in Mark is so clear is that Jesus Christ did not come to be served, although he was worthy of it, but he came to serve. Now, it's interesting because we can assume that actually Jesus' followers didn't fully get his point because a few chapters later, you may remember this passage in Mark 10, it's actually only about two weeks after Jesus said it, 
they're gathered at a Passover meal. And typically at every meal, there's a servant there who um, washes the, the feet of the, the people that come in for the meal, the dirt and the dust and the feet. Because in those times when you sat at a table, you sat crisscross applesauce, if you're a parent, you know what that means. But your feet are just about level to the table. And so you had to wash your hands and your feet in order to have dinner together. And so typically there was a servant at the door who would wash the dirty, dusty feet. But at this particular meal, there wasn't. And so Jesus himself takes on that role. And the disciples are blown away. They're blown away. They don't understand it. He felt entirely comfortable doing this menial service because he was sure of his true place in the hierarchy of things. Jesus didn't worry about status. Jesus didn't worry about image. Jesus didn't worry about his reputation being hurt to get down and serve others. Jesus had already taken a step down from heaven to come to earth. He had put on flesh and come to us. He had gone from a perfect place in heaven into our messed up, upside down world. And so washing a few guys' dirty feet was no big deal. In fact, this was a, a, a statement, a reminder of what Jesus ultimately did for us. Jesus was always closing the gap between being uh, what they expected the King Messiah was gonna be and, and being a servant. And some wanted to crown him. People met him and when they heard that he was the Messiah, they wanted to crown him. But he kept saying, no, no, I'm gonna put myself on ground level. I'm gonna meet people's practical needs because I want everyone to understand very boldly and very clearly that I have come to serve and not to be served. And not only did Jesus clearly tell uh, the servants, he said, listen, the greatest of all is a servant. He also lived this way. His life was congruent with the truth. Jesus believed all people were equal. Jesus believed all people were equal. In the scripture, Jesus is always surrounded by the poor and the marginalized. Why? Because he was nice? Well, yeah, Jesus was nice. But also because he was telling people, listen, what the culture values is messed up. It, that is upside down. That isn't how it works. Things don't give people value. Jesus was always disrupting the system by which people were getting their false redemption. Remember at one point Jesus says, um, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he was saying is, a man like this, a man at the top of the food chain, a person who has everything they need and it has influence and power and money, they're gonna have trouble seeing their need for Christ. But a servant, a servant is going to know that they have nothing to offer and they will cling to God easier. But here's the deal, both will need God's help for redemption. Both, they're equal. And Jesus just constantly was equaling the playing field of humanity. Guess what? We all need Christ. We all need to depend on him. There, there's no one that, that gets a free pass. There's no one that can earn their way into heaven any other way. Jesus said, you're all equal, all the people. And Jesus loved to be with people. Jesus loved to be with people. Um, Muhammad and Joseph Smith are two um, religious radicals. And when they were here on earth, they sat down and they wrote a book. They wrote a book that many people read even today. But Jesus never did that. Jesus didn't sit and write a book. You know what he did? He accumulated friends and they wrote about him. 
He, he, he accumulated friends. He talked to people. He, he sat with people. He made people feel so intentional in the love of God that all they could do was run into town and testify about who he was. He ate with people. He attended parties. He prayed. He traveled. And he worked with people. And we see in the scripture that those who knew Christ personally went on to do amazing things. It fueled a lifetime of joy and of health. These guys that spent time with Jesus were faithful to the very end. They even died for him. And Jesus didn't try to acquire power over them. He just loved them. He served them. This is what Jesus did. He didn't come to earth and create an army and say, okay, we're going to fight the faith into the generations. He came to earth and he washed people's feet. And he fed them, and, and he served them, and he healed their, their children, and he met their needs right where they were. People didn't believe Jesus was God at that time, and still now, because they didn't expect Jesus to look like that. They wanted Jesus to come down and be rich and good-looking and respectable so that their religious system would make them look good. They wanted someone who could redeem them to their jury of peers, not a God who came down and served and cared and hung out with the sick. And we see that in the scripture, the disciples all the time are going, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you here with this one Samaritan woman? Why are you talking to this one woman at the well? There's all these things we need to do. And Jesus was just turning their paradigm upside down and inside out. I didn't come here to be served. I came here to serve. And that was Jesus' agenda, to serve and not to be served. And if we want to be like Jesus, this must be our only agenda too. So as we look at our mission this month, we've been following a man in the scripture who is a great leader, a visionary named Nehemiah. And if you missed the last two weeks, you can catch them on the podcast if you want to catch up to where we are in the story. But a small recap is we see in the book of Nehemiah uh, so many examples of men and women of great faith who were effective servants of God. And as you remember, Nehemiah had a great burden because the walls around Jerusalem were in shambles. They were, they, they were um, completely broken down. And he had this burden because that meant the city of God wasn't safe. And the people who were living there were falling away from God. And when Nehemiah prayed, he felt God impress on him that he was supposed to be part of the solution. He was supposed to be the one to help rebuild the city walls. And I think sometimes we um, assume maybe Nehemiah had some experience in this. He was not a builder. He, he was a cupbearer. He had never built a wall in his life. And God says, it's you. It's you I want to go do this. And we can learn a lot of important lessons about serving in the book of Nehemiah, but I'm going to talk to you about two this morning, okay? All right, tell the person next to you. She's going to tell us two. All right. The first one is this. God loves to use small things. God loves to use small things. So sometimes um, when we sign up to serve, we often feel like the small things are mundane or of little importance. Like, are we really making a difference just by passing the offering bag on Sunday? Are, are we really making a difference by greeting people at the door, or running the screen lyrics? But the truth is, God does not think any act of service for him is unimportant. God does not think any act of service for him is unimportant. And who are we trying to please? Like the violinist, the only person we should want to get a standing ovation from is our master. And so in Nehemiah chapter 3, 
Uh, Many people actually skip over this chapter when they're reading through Nehemiah because it's basically a list of names that you can't really pronounce (laughs) and genealogies of those that help rebuild gates and walls. Um, so I just want to, I want to show you an example of the book of Nehemiah, uh, the chapter 3 of Nehemiah here, Nehemiah 3, 13 through 14. Um, the valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of that guy, and they rebuilt it, and they put its doors with their bolts and bars in place, and they also repaired a thousand cubits of wall as far as the dung gate. And the dung gate was repaired by this guy, ruler of the district of Beth Hakerim, and he rebuilt it, and he put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. I could have faked it, but I don't know how to say those words either. But this goes on, okay, for verses and verses and verses. Names you can't pronounce, listing menial tasks. And the dung gate was actually the gate where all the garbage, all the ash from the sacrifices, and all the dung, if you know what I mean, was removed. What a job. Not the most glorious assignment. Which gate did you work on today? Oh, the gate that the kings come through. Awesome. Which gate did you work on? Oh, the gate where they bring in all the carts to sell things in the thing. What about you? (laughs) That one over there. I wore my mask, you know. Not a very glorious task, but God wanted us to see and know the names of the people who laid beams, put bolts in place, measured the distance, and carried the bricks. He wanted us to know who repaired not just the entry gate or the significant gate, but the one where the garbage passed through. Because God loves for us to do the small things. That was important to God too, because those people were working unto God. They were being servants. An interesting note about the humility of Nehemiah, in the entire chapter, it details every worker in every tedious task, and he never, ever records himself. What a servant leader. God loves to use small things. And oftentimes, we just have to take what little we have, and it's more than enough for God to use. When we are willing to use our small abilities and assets to him, he can make us stewards of, our glory, of his glory. And what we have to do is stop talking about what we don't have and what we can't do and the things that we can't give and just start giving what we do have. So you do have once a month, then we'll take it. <laughs> so you do have uh, one, one day a, a week that you can help your neighbor, then give that. So you can't solve the whole problem? Well, then give what you have. When you start giving what you have and not always thinking about what you don't have, you begin to activate a miracle. And maybe you feel right now that God is asking you to do menial things, things that don't seem to have such a huge purpose or a huge impact. Maybe you're stuck in a job that you don't love, or maybe you're raising a teenager who's driving you out of your mind. Or maybe you're you're taking care of an aging parent Um, and everything just seems to be getting increasingly difficult, I want to encourage you, stay faithful serving in the small things. Stay faithful serving in the small things because Matthew 25, 21 reminds us, if you will be faithful with little, God will make you faithful over much. So be faithful with little. All right, the second lesson we can learn from Nehemiah about serving is that when we serve Uh, We live our lives for Christ. When when we do that, when we actually obey what he's asking us to do, uh, we will encounter opposition. 
Now, last week we talked a little bit about this, but Nehemiah had a lot of critics when he was serving God. He had all kinds of problems. He, he ran into people problems and resource problems and leadership problems. Um, we can all relate to this. We all have problems. Raise your hand today if you're like, yeah, I have a problem I'm dealing with. I have this thing in my email. It's going to come up on Monday. I'm going to have to deal it out. Um, if you don't have a problem, call the church. I'll give you one of mine. All right? We'll work on it together. We all have problems. And what we see through Nehemiah's account of building the wall is that God uses our problems to build our character. God uses our problems to build our character. And so the second serving lesson this morning is opposition creates a greater dependence on God. So there was a man named Igor Sikorsky. He was born in Russia. His father was a psychology professor. His mother was a doctor. He was homeschooled. And at the the year of 1900, um, at the age of 12, was told that competent authorities had proven that human flight was impossible. There was no way humans could fly. And that same year, uh, in his bedroom, he created a rubber band helicopter that he flew around his room. (laughs) And he said he had these moments of thinking, I don't know why they think that, but someday I'm going to prove them wrong. And by the start of World War I, which was only 14 years later, Igor owned a factory that was producing bombers for the war. Three years later, the government viewed him such a threat He had to flee his homeland, and in 1919, he arrived in New York City. And he dealt with many hardships. He dealt with many setbacks in his lifetime. But he designed and produced, I think I have a picture, 30 types of airplanes, helicopters, and flying boats. And in his American plant, in the factory where they made these, he posted this sign. According to recognized aerotechnical tests, the bumblebee cannot fly because of the shape and weight of his body in relation to the total wing area. The bumblebee does not know this, so he goes ahead and flies anyway. And Nehemiah would have loved that sign. Nehemiah would have loved that sign. Because Nehemiah's account shows that whenever you try to accomplish something significant for the Lord, you will face strong opposition. That the enemy of God never bothers with half-hearted people who are content with a whole-home spiritual existence. But if you show up with a plan and a passion and a fire in your belly for Christ, watch out. Because things are going to try to come against you. There will be opposition. And you know, I also believe that, that this applies to churches, that the enemy doesn't mind when churches gather to sing and hear soothing sermons about how to use the Bible to achieve personal success. Those churches are no threat to the domain of darkness that the enemy has. But when we talk about the gospel, when we commit ourselves to holy living, when we decide to love and build and send people at all costs, We will face opposition. And when you commit to getting here every Sunday morning, to joining a group, and to serving on a team, which are the three things that we really believe will help us love, build, and send effectively, our church will be more effective, and in turn, it will be more threatening to the enemy. So we're probably asking for more opposition. But what's interesting about opposition and conflict in the spiritual world is this. Opposition always produces a greater dependence on God. And isn't that the point? Isn't that the point? Opposition always produces a greater dependence on God. And when we find ourselves in situations and we're thinking, God, what have I gotten myself into? This is too big. This is too hard. This is too much. God, if you don't come through, I'm sunk. Well, that's exactly where God wants you to be and stay forever. 
Men and women who have great vision also must have great faith. And throughout their faith, God is honored. And when you decide to serve, you will face opposition, and that will come in many forms. But remember, God is building your character and helping you be more dependent on him through those problems. Serving makes us more like Jesus. Serving makes us more like Jesus. And isn't that the goal? To live for the applause and the approval of the master. Yes, we need help. We need help to make Sundays great. We need help. There's significant needs in this body that God designed for us to take care of together, yes. But also, the reason why we serve is because serving makes us more like Jesus. So more than any of that, I'm asking each person that comes to Erie First to serve on a team because there's something about humbly dying to self, giving up your time, and your resources that makes your heart more like Jesus. This is God's vision and desire for Erie First and for every church, that his disciples would follow him and be more like him. A few years ago, um, God spoke something very clearly to me about my life, and it's a phrase that I often use as a prayer. Um, it's, a, it's a phrase that I often use in, in conversations I have with others, and in some ways I feel like it's, it's like my life vision, and it's this. I can put my yes on the table without even knowing what God is asking me to do. I can put my yes on the table without even knowing what God is asking me to do. I can say yes before I even know all the details or when it, what it will require me or what I will have to give up for it because God is worthy of my yes. And so yes, God, yes. Yes, I, I don't know all that it is. I don't know all the pressures I'll face. I don't know all the opposition, but my prayer today is yes, God, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And I pray this morning that we can put our yes on the table without reservation, without holding back. And so we're gonna actually have a, a way to respond this morning. Um, in your pew rack in front of you, there's a little orange card. It looks like this. It says Erie First Teams on it. And on the top it says, say yes to serving on a team. And so I'm gonna ask you to respond this morning. Now I realize you don't have all the details, you don't know your schedule, you, you don't know the time you can give. Maybe you say, you know, I'm already doing a lot of these, I'm already serving on multiple teams. If that's the case, then I want you to just agree to God, you know what, I'll, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll say yes, maybe it's a different team you want me to serve on, maybe you want me to, to do something different than I've done for the last several years, I'll, I'll do anything you want me to do. God wants your yes to dive in and start coming to church to serve and not to be served. So here's what we're gonna do. If you would take that card, put your name on it, um, and uh, if you would fill it out, and we're gonna have the ushers are gonna come and they're gonna collect them, and our staff team will be contacting you in the next few weeks to um, get you all plugged in with all the details. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna sing this song again called Waymaker. And I'm gonna let you sort of pray and think about what you wanna put on the card. And then in a, a few minutes, a little bit through the song, I'll have the ushers come and we'll collect them. Um, but first, let me just pray for you. Father God, I thank you so much that um, you came to earth to serve and not to be served. I thank you, Father God, that you gave us this great example of how we can please you. And that's to do all the things, all the menial things, all the things that don't seem important maybe, but God, they're things that that <laughs> things that just serve you because you are worthy of it, that we can just love people, all, the, all people on the, on the whole earth, God, that we can love them well the way you have. And I just pray, Father God, that you would encourage
encourage people in this room even now to jump in, to be part of the mission and the vision of Erie First by serving on a team. And God, that those that are already serving, I pray they would feel your, your great um, encouragement to them. God, that they could always work for an audience of one to please their master. And Holy Spirit, I pray today that uh, we could just become <laughs> a force to be reckoned with, Father God, in the spiritual world. God, that we could do things that you would want us to do, the mission of Erie First Assembly, God, that we could follow closely. God, that our expectations would be measured upon what you would want for us. And so, God, we love you. We, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to serve like you have served. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. take some time, fill out that card. It's okay to pray over it. It's okay to think about where God might want you to serve. We'll just sing this song over you. I'm struck by the statement that our obedience opens doors because we're singing this song, Waymaker. And while he is a waymaker, we have a role to play. We can help him open those doors and make that way. Let's just think on that as you fill it out. Keeper light in the darkness, my God, that is who. 